Well, good morning, everybody. I'm on double duty this morning, so bass players don't do much anyway, so it's, it's fine. So I hope, we, I hope we've all burned off all the, or at least come to terms with the calories we all ate during Thanksgiving. Um, one of the best parts of Thanksgiving for me has been that I get two now, and one of these days I'm going to pace myself, but that wasn't this year, so. So we're in the second week of Advent, and we're going to be talking about peace this morning. I have the privilege to talk about that, although it's been a rocky relationship that I've had with peace in my own life recently. As many of you know, me and my wife welcomed, and my daughter welcomed our second daughter into our family this August, and it's further thrown off the masculine energy in my house. I'm outnumbered three to one now if you don't even count the six hens we just got, so I'm, hope, I'm really pulling for a dog this spring. We'll see if it happens, but... I found that at least how we define peace culturally, it's hard to come by when you've got two little ones in the house, and that's not only because of the girls. I come back from work, and all I want to do is enter into a home that has peace in it, but I'm bringing all my anxiety, all my stress from the work day, and then I try and make peace, which usually results in everyone doing exactly what I say, no deviations, and no one, just no one, no one touch anything, no one do anything, just do as I say, and that hasn't really been working out for me, and when, uh, so when Daniel told me I was preaching on peace this morning, I took it kind of as a, uh, challenge isn't the right word, but I figured it was about time for me to start and try and figure out how I can, you know, bring peace into my household, and I don't think I figured it out all the way, but I think we're getting better at it, so I want to share some of that with you this morning. I'd, I'd like to start with a quick prayer, though, if you guys don't mind. <clears throat> well, Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. I pray you would give me wisdom and strength to speak as you would have me speak this morning. I pray you would open everyone's hearts and minds and ears and eyes this morning, and that you would have them hear what you would want them to hear, even if my words would not convey that perfectly, and that you would fill each of us with your spirit, and you would point us towards you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Peace. So one of the problems we have when we're talking about peace is our definitions. We're really, really informed by how our culture, specifically over here in the West, defines what peace is. So it's important for us to take just a second to reorient ourselves and talk about and frame how peace is discussed by the biblical authors, how they understand peace. I was going to do that for a little bit longer, but the Bible Project's actually got a really good video on it, so if you want to go watch that video, that would be great. I was going to show it this morning, but I was already running long, so we're not going to do that. If I had to summarize, though, that definition of peace that is, you know, just prevalent in the Hebrew scriptures, it would be this, restorative wholeness. It's the state of being that's most reflective of God's original intention for his creation. And if you read our dictionary definitions of peace, and there's like, I think, five in Merriam-Webster or something like that, they all have to do with a state of calm, either geopolitically, interpersonally, or emotionally. And what these definitions miss is the connection between peace and 
the conditions of peace, what brings peace. Shalom, as Carolyn Arends writes, is a transformation of the conditions that led to war in the first place. So the opposite of peace is not actually war, as far as the Bible is concerned. The opposite of peace is distrust, greed, hate. The opposite of peace is not relational conflict, it's betrayal, selfishness, and dishonesty. The opposite of peace is not anxiety and depression, it's the systems, trauma, and brokenness that lead to anxiety and depression. So why is this important? Well, if we're going to talk about, like we do at Advent, what Jesus came to do on earth, we have to talk about the kind of peace he was going to bring. And Jesus did not come to give us a shallow peace. He came to bring a transformative, restorative, and cosmos-altering shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. A state of general calmness and quietude, while nice and in many ways good, is not really the aim. The peace that Jesus came to give you is a peace that lasts throughout eternity. One that starts with fixing and repairing all the things in our hearts and our lives that led to our loss of peace in the first place. Now, peace is a process, and it is when we engage in that process and work towards that eternal peace that we are most likely to experience peace here and now. So how does God conspire to give you eternal peace? I'd like to talk about what I believe God's plan is here and what his word lays out as the conditions of peace the conditions he works to bring about and to ensure your peace. There's three I want to talk about, three conditions of this peace that Jesus brings. I want to focus on the rule of God, the righteousness of man, and restorative conflict. Okay? The first is this. Peace can only prosper in the kingdom of God. Where God rules, there is peace. Where anyone else rules, there is not peace. This wholeness in life, health, and relationship, this restoration can only happen in the place or in a heart where Jesus is Lord. We see this in Isaiah 9, the quintessential Christmas prophecy, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Continues to say, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now, it's the government of God that's directly tied to peace. The word for government in Hebrew means exactly what we would expect. To rule, to have dominion over, to govern, And it's only in God's government, his kingdom, that peace can prosper. Isaiah 52 also touches on this. In verse 7 it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Well, there's the good news right there. Your God reigns. This is the gospel of the kingdom of God, the same gospel that Jesus preached. Now, 
We tend to focus on Jesus a lot as our Savior. We focus on what he's done for us, what he's saved us from, and how he makes us feel. And that's fine, but if we're not careful, we can easily make the gospel all about us. Acknowledging that the gospel is not primarily a gospel of personal salvation, but a gospel of the kingdom of God, places Jesus as the center and king of our lives and places the kingdom's priorities before our own. We can't publish the good news that Jesus saves without publishing the good, publishing the good news that Jesus reigns. Does he? I mean, does he reign in your lives? And that's not a theological question, it's a personal one. I know God is sovereign, he has control over everything that happens in your lives, but that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, are you trying, still trying to control outcomes and shape situations and people into whatever shape you think they should take? I'm asking if you're doggedly pursuing your plan for your life without taking God's plan into account. Does your God reign in your life? Have you actualized the gospel of the kingdom in your heart? That's a hard question. It's not simple to answer, but sit with it this week. Ask God to illuminate places where your idols are on the throne or where you're on the throne instead of Jesus. Because I'll tell you this, peace cannot prosper in a heart that harbors rival kingdoms. First condition of peace must be under the rule of God. The second condition of peace I'd like to discuss is peace can only flourish in righteousness. Quick definition of righteousness might be helpful. Often it gets lumped in with holiness and other biblical words for being good. And again, there's a nuance here in the Hebrew that is important. The word righteousness is primarily concerned with right relationships between people, either between me and you or between you and God. Closely related to righteousness is this idea of justice, justice being righteousness for the past. Wherever something has happened that has been unrighteous, wherever relationships have been broken, trust has been betrayed and people have been abused, we need justice. And you may think I'm getting just a little bit sidetracked, right? What do justice and righteousness have to do with peace? Well, if we go back to the Gospel of Matthew, we see perhaps one of the more popular passages about anxiety, which certainly isn't peace. In Matthew 6, 25 through 34, we, we see Jesus inviting us to take a look at the birds and the lilies. He says, your father takes care of these and I can assure you he loves you a lot more than he loves some bird and birds and flowers. He concludes by saying this, therefore do not be anxious or be at peace, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus seems to think that righteousness and peace are connected. If we seek the kingdom of God first, if we place Jesus on the throne of our hearts and we seek to be righteous like he is righteous, then we will have peace. Isaiah is convinced of this as well. If we return to Isaiah chapter 9 and just read 
a little bit further, just one line further, we read this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, for Isaiah, the peace that is in God's government is established and upheld by justice and righteousness. Righteousness and justice are what inaugurate the kingdom of God as well as what allows it to be sustained. In Isaiah 32, Isaiah speaks of the rule of a righteous king. He says, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. And he goes on to describe how the ungodly, those whose hearts are busy with iniquity and who follow other kings, will be dealt with. He says, for the palace is forsaken and the populous city is deserted. That's the rival kingdom. And he says, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys and the pasture of flocks. Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And here's the main verse, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. The effect of righteousness will be peace. See, when people are in right relationship with each other and in right relationship with God, the natural result is peace. How could it be anything other? The problem is, that's not really our natural state, is it? There's only one man who's ever been in complete right relationship with God and in complete right relationship with everyone he ever met. Want to take a guess who that might be? Sunday school answer, Matt. Yay, we got it. This is how Jesus brings peace. While he came declaring the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, he lived in perfect righteousness, leaving no stain on his relationship with God, and he then gives us that righteousness. He gifts that right relationship to us. Isaiah 53 says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed, restored, made whole. We read later in Colossians, For in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things making peace by the blood of his cross. We've been given a righteous relationship with God through Jesus. This is not something to be wasted. Instead, it should be cultivated and maintained. It's also a gift to be accepted. And if you're here this morning and you think you might need this gift, let me tell you, you do. And if you want to accept it, please talk to somebody here, somebody who looks like they know what they're talking about. Most of you do. And, or Pastor Matt or Pastor Daniel or Pastor Ruben. We'd love to talk to you about that. If we're not careful, though, 
we can start to trust in our own righteousness. The law, or the requirements that God laid out for righteousness in the Old Testament, is extensive. Scholars count the number of laws in the Old Testament to be over 600. And now, if we were to follow all those perfectly, we would be righteous before God. But that's not only overwhelming, it's impossible. Again, only one person's ever done it. Jesus, in fulfilling that law, allows us access to righteousness, to a right relationship with God, without that impossible burden. So we can't do it on our own, but we're not completely off the hook either. The burden has been lifted, but God still wants us to walk with him. We've been gifted this righteousness freely. Now we're called to steward and increase in righteousness. Hear what Romans 8 has to say about this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We are to live into this blessed relationship that we have, this righteous relationship by the Father given, us, given to us by Jesus. We're supposed to increase in righteousness, cultivate and maintain that right relationship with him and with others. And it's not supposed to be easy. It is called carrying our cross after all. To cultivate righteousness in our lives, to do right by God and others is to help establish and maintain the kingdom of God and it is hard work. We aren't in it alone, though. We've just read in Romans that it's only those who walk in the Spirit in whom this righteous requirement can be fulfilled. We read earlier in Isaiah that the prerequisite for a desolate city to be filled with life, righteousness, and peace is that the Spirit be poured out. We aren't left to cultivate and maintain this righteousness by ourselves. No, we have a helper. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Holy Spirit of truth. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Thank God he gave us a helper. One to remind us, to spur us on, encourage us, and help us appropriate the peace of Jesus. But we must be sensitive to his ministry. We must listen for his voice. We, we get in our own heads way too easily and we just run over whatever the Spirit's trying to say to us. Slow down. Wait, listen, obey. Then the Spirit will begin to instruct you in righteousness and the peace of Jesus will fill your hearts. So we've seen that peace can prosper only in a place where God is in the throne and that peace can only flourish in the face of righteousness. Third condition of peace is this, that 
Peace comes through restorative conflict. Again, we could turn to Isaiah 9 for a third time, and this time we'll actually read the whole verse, verse 7 there. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it in justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. If we had a more modern rendering of that, it would say something like the jealous rage of the Lord of armies. God's people and his kingdom mean everything to him. He's jealous for them and he will, not stop, he will stop at nothing to see them protected and advanced. We see this in Isaiah 27 as well. The first couple of verses of Isaiah 27 say this. In, the day, in that day, the Lord with his hand, with a, sorry, let me try that again. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. The sea real quick. Leviathan, generally a stand-in for any kind of chaotic forces in the world, whether that be Assyrian kings, the devil himself. So this is God slaying anything that is contrary to peace. This is him slaying chaos. He continues, and this is God speaking now. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Once the battle is done, God has no need for his wrath. But if there remained a solitary weed in his garden, he would bring the whole might of his armies down upon it. That passage continues to say, Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. God's jealous zeal for his people pursues their peace, and he will destroy all that stands in the way of his church, his kingdom, being at peace. And sometimes that looks an awful lot like chaos and destruction to us. Jesus touches on this in Matthew 10, in verse 34 through 36. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, the first time I read this part of the sermon to my wife, she said, didn't you just contradict your entire sermon? I said, wait, it'll get to the second half. (laughs) But it's true, right? We, We thought Jesus was supposed to bring peace. So why then is he wielding the sword? The operative words here are this, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Often when we long for peace, we want life on earth where everyone's just a little bit nicer. You know, no one's fighting, we all get along. What Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God and its peace does not come to just modify the world, it comes to overtake it. 
There are things that need to be cast out and broken down for peace to be built up. And often, those things feel very close to home to us. God is not content to let anything in his kingdom stand that is built on any other foundation than him. He will tear down all that is wrong with our lives and our relationships, and it just often feels like destruction for destruction's own sake. We just want God to leave us alone and stop interfering sometimes, don't we? And hear me when I say this, church. God never destroys for destruction's sake. He destroys to make room for something better. He destroys to restore. He destroys to make peace. Those on the path of peace almost always encounter what feels like chaos. In Isaiah 1, we read this, I will turn my head, this is God speaking, by the way, I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with, and, and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. We need to trust that God knows what he's doing when he shepherds us through chaos. Just as Joseph could look in the eyes of his abusers, the eyes of those who mistreated him, and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So too, we need to trust that our trials are used by God to burn away our dross and purify us. And it may feel like we have no control of the situation. I'll tell you, that's the complete and utter truth. If we allow this work and this battle, this battle alongside God and with God, and we enter into repentance and trust, we'll be redeemed. I wish I didn't have to say it, but I do. There's a warning here. Rebels and, sh- rebel- rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. This is a hard truth. But if you do battle with God and you never relent, never submit, never repent, not only will you never win, you will become part of what needs to be wiped away for peace to prosper. We find ourselves on the wrong time of the battle sometimes, don't we? And can I tell you that God is so patient. He's so patient with you. He's so eager to forgive and accept you. Listen to Isaiah 27 again. He says, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or... Let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Do you need to make peace with God this morning? Good news, he's ready for it. So ready, in fact, he's done most of the work for you. All you need to do is turn around, lay hold of his protection, accept the gift of Jesus' righteousness, which is peace, with God. Now we've talked about three conditions for peace. The rule of God, 
our righteousness and the peace comes through restorative conflict. Now, as I said earlier, peace is a process and God and his infinite divine wisdom has asked us to enter into that process with him, to labor alongside him. In the, sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. We're called to this church to take part in peacemaking alongside Jesus. Now, I think it's important to realize, water, that in most every situation there are elements of peace that have already been secured, There are elements of peace that have not yet been secured. And there are elements of peace that will not be secured until Jesus comes for a second time. That's why as we begin to talk about how we practice peace, what we can do to bring peace to the world, I'd like to talk about three specific practices. Rest, fight, and hope. First, rest. If we do not rest in the peace that's already been won for us, then we'll struggle to fight for and to hope for the present and future peace. What is that peace? Again, it is the peace won for us on the cross of Christ, the righteousness given to us by Jesus. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're not floored by the fact that we have peace with God, I don't think we rightly understand the magnitude of our offenses towards him. We go through life sometimes just trying to survive, and often we internalize and cover up so much of our sin and guilt that we're calloused to such grand statements. We've heard them before, and we accept them as true, but they, in effect, mean very little to us. We, in an attempt to shield ourselves from overwhelming guilt and shame, have made or continue to make little of our sin. And can I be honest with you? There are things that I've done in my life that I know I'm forgiven for, that I know are under the blood of Jesus, but when I think of these things, I do not have peace. I've made, I had made in my past little of my sin, and now I feel like I need to make much of it to make up for lost time. And I really don't think that's the right way, the right way to go. Can I read Philippians 4, 8 through 9 for you? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now correct me if I'm wrong, church, but that does not sound like dwelling in our past sin. What it does sound like is soaking in the forgiveness of those sins. Remember, Jesus is Lord and Savior. I'm 
in the midst of this journey myself, but it seems to me that the sword of Jesus cuts and divides our sin from the Father's forgiveness so we can not dwell on our sin, which makes it all about us, but at the same time dwell on the forgiveness of that sin. It's a miraculous thing that we can dwell on one without even thinking about the other, isn't it? We can. I think when we practice resting in that, the just, true, pure, lovely, excellent, praiseworthy forgiveness of God will renew our minds with the peace of Jesus. There are things for me, habits and carryovers from the way I used to live that have been pretty sticky habits to try and get rid of. And I'm convinced that should this truth penetrate my bones and soak my soul, that those things would fade away. And I'm I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you all. We must rest in the truth that God is at peace with us through Jesus Christ. And if we don't, we won't be ready for the battle. That brings me to the second practice of peace. We're called as Christians to fight for peace in our relationships. Some of us may be in the position to fight for this restorative wholeness in other spheres, but your primary focus as a Christian is to bring the kingdom of God and its righteousness and justice to those in which God has placed you in close proximity. Your family, your church, your neighbors. Now, let me say first, this battle begins in the terrain of our own soul. All of your relationships have one thing in common, at least, and that's that you're a part of them. It's this internal warfare that we do which allows the work of peacemaking with those around us to begin. As we labor to further push back the enemy's dominion in our own heart, the kingdom of God will use us to launch an invasion into our kids, our coworkers, our spouse. What does that look like? Well, we've talked about some of the conditions necessary for our own peace. So it's natural we would fight for those same conditions in others. We must be okay with conflict in our relationships because peace comes through conflict, as we've talked about. A friend of mine who's a pastor over in Whitesboro says this, and maybe he got it from someone else, I'm not really sure, but in talking about marriage, he says, a good marriage is like trying to make a fire. You need two sticks or two people, time and friction. I hear some laughs. I think that's true for all of our relationships. It's going to take disagreement, uncomfortable conversations, and stress to get rid of the garbage in your relationship and replace it with gold. The key is to enter into those conflicts, not with a desire to be right, not with a desire for the other person to be wrong, but with a desire to achieve restorative wholeness. We've already talked about how our righteousness and the rule of the kingdom in our hearts factors into the battle, but for true peace to prosper between people, 
All parties need to be resting in the righteousness of Jesus and submitting to him as Lord. Now let me give you some bad news. You cannot force the kingdom of God into somebody else. Now let me follow that up with some infinitely good news. God can. I'd like to read a passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I'm going to apply this passage to women and men. It specifically only talks to men, but my wife said it was okay that I could apply it to women as well. So if you have a problem, talk to her. Um, <laughs> no, I, truly though, I think it's contextual that Paul's only addressing men here and that for sure it can apply to everybody. So you'll hear when I say it again. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I, Paul, desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Anger and quarreling are those unproductive types of conflict. They're the ones that, in which we try to exert our own will instead of God's will. We take a situation or a person, we... we think if we could just say the right words or just knock some sense into them, they would finally do what they were supposed to do. You see this right here? This is the posture of anger and quarreling. Do you want to see the posture of godly warfare? It's up here. The things we can't change, we must trust to God. You can't change other people. Only God can. Your part in that conflict is to fervently pray for his kingdom to come into the hearts of your children, your spouse, your parent, your sibling, your friend, your coworker. This is the beautiful foolishness of gospel warfare that we run headlong into battle with no weapon but the spirit of prayer with our hands up looking like fools. But that's only foolish to the world because we know that we have the Lord of hosts behind us. The Lord of hosts who sets captives free, who knocks down strongholds. Wherever the battle for peace of the kingdom of God takes place, we must approach it with the weapons of the kingdom of God. War, slander, hate, frustration, gossip, passive aggression, apathy, those are the weapons of the enemy. Love. Grace, mercy, peace. These are the weapons of the kingdom of God. The unfortunate truth about life on earth is that we don't see peace fully brought in all situations. That's why our final practice is so important. We must hope in the peace of the second advent. That's what Pastor Matt preached on last week, right? Hope. As we celebrate Advent, we look at the birth of Christ and the host of angels at his side, ready to do war for the sake of peace. We remember where that warfare took him, to the cross, where he could have called that host to fight for him and to take him down from that cross, but he held them back. And in taking on our brokenness, our iniquity, and our sin, he died in order to give us his righteousness, to take our place. 
he ran as far from peace as possible straight into the tomb. But that does not hold him. He rises again in victory over death and secures the final victory over death for us. Then he promises a second coming, a second advent, when he will return and make everything right, restore all the brokenness and reign forever. There's a great song out right now. Uh, it's called I See a King. Liz Weiss sings it. It's a compilation album. It's fantastic. And the first verse is I See a King. And I forgot the rest of it. But the main, th- the main thing, <laughs> I had it when I came up here, guys. The main thing I wanted to grab out of it, though, is he says, it says he's making the bad untrue. That's a simple way to understand it, but it's powerful, right? All that's bad all that's broken, this is going to be untrue when Jesus comes back. I'm going to invite the band to come back up at this point, but this Advent season, let's rest in the peace that we have from the Father. In the righteousness of Christ, we have that peace, and let's fight. Let's fight here on earth to advance the gospel peace into every corner of our lives with the foolishness of the gospel. All the while knowing that in the end, the main thing we need is for Jesus to come back, restore it all, make it whole again, and make the bad untrue. Let's pray. Father, we... We concede and admit that it's sometimes a struggle to understand that peace comes through the means of war. We find it hard to trust in your wisdom and in your strength and in your righteousness instead of our own. Father, I ask that you would help us understand that this morning, that you turn our hearts to thankfulness and to worship and that you would help us understand and appropriate the peace of Jesus. Amen.